Good morning, Joy Christian Center family. It is Sunday, April 19th, and we're going to get into our sermon, which today is the theology of worship. Um, I may have given one of these in the past. Um, I'd like to think that I've grown, if if I have, I'd like to think that I've grown since then. Um, and I want to give you guys sort of like an insider perspective into the ministry of worship, since you guys all know that I, I lead worship. Um, things that I've gleaned from my peers, um, from people who are above me, from, from books that I've read, and a little bit from the school that I went to. So this is going to be sort of a conglomerate, cumulative, and as concise as it can be sermon on the theology of worship. Now, in all fairness, this could probably be a, a series, which I know pastors always have a fun time doing. Um, but we're going to try to get it into about 30, 40 minutes. But let's pray, and then we'll get into the theology of worship. Heavenly Father, you are holy, you are set apart, and you are good. And Lord, we're going to spend a lifetime until Christ returns or until you call us home, learning just what that means. Hopefully, never forgetting our depravity, never forgetting our desperate need to be saved from ourselves and from the enemy, from temptations that arise within and from without. Lord, we pray that through this and through the presentation of, of your word, that you would show us more about you. Show us and show me, even as I preach, show all of us what it is you like, what pleases you, what is the right way to worship and praise you through song and through poetry and through all that we have at our disposal. Lord, praise is about you, and we want to do it well, because you are who it is for, and it is always for you because you are holy and good and always, always worthy. And as Christians living in the light of the saving grace of the cross of Christ, we have all the more owing and indebtedness to you to be pouring out praise and adoration and affection. Show us how to do this well, Lord is my prayer today. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, this might sound rudimentary, foundational, um, but I think it is necessary. We're going to begin with our look at the theology of worship, the doctrine of worship, with some simple definitions. Um, we're not going to get too in-depth into a lot of the common uh, Bible passages but we will grace over some of them just to kind of give a, well, obviously some scriptural and biblical foundation for the, the arguments and the points that I will be making. Um, we'll be covering verses like John 4 with Jesus and the woman at the well, where the, the famous verse where God is looking for worshipers that will worship in spirit and in truth. We'll be looking at Ephesians 4 and 17, which has a lot of mind and brain and mentality language. Um, as it relates to devoting ourselves to God. Romans 12 is living sacrifices. Let your worship be your bodies as living sacrifices. That's another famous one. Deuteronomy 6.4 is love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. So we'll grace over some of these, but one of the big ones that, we, that we're, I don't know if we'll, we'll dwell on, but will be one of the driving points is actually going to be in 2 Samuel, which we'll get to in a bit. But first, let's start with some definitions. The first one that I want is actually not the definition of worship because that could, that could be uh, submitted in a few different ways, but actually praise. 
Since we know Paul in Romans 12 describes worship as your bodies as living sacrifices, so that's pretty grand and pretty deep and pretty holistic life submission. Um, we could use that as a definition for worship, but um, I'm actually specifically talking about the praise ministry, the, the act of singing. And this is what I want to get into. So praise is going to be our first definition. And one of the things that I learned in school of worship was that praise, if we're going to go back into the, into Hebrew, hallelujah, praise be to God, hallelujah, praise be to God. So hallelujah doesn't just mean praise. It means actually praise be to God. Hallel, praise, ooyah, to God, praise be to God. So what is praise? And what we were taught, the, the simple definition is to speak well of. To speak well of something, to speak well of someone. Um, I think there's a bit, there's a hint of to speak well of someone in their presence. So to give a, a simple image for you guys. Take a dog. Doing a trick. Roll over. Lie down. Whatever. When the dog obeys, when it successfully carries out the task, you assigned it, you say, good boy, good girl, good. You're attributing worth to their action. You are praising them. Good job. You did good. We do this to musicians. We do this to artists. We do this to coworkers in, in the workforce, our coworkers, our, our peers in schools. To speak well of, good job. Now, that might seem simple and obvious and, and goes without saying, but it's actually, I think, in these rudimentary foundational level things that if we miss or skew ever so slightly, just like a degree difference on the compass over miles can have a big trajectory change, I think we need to make sure that we establish the foundation so that we don't go awry later down the road. Praise us to speak well of. Therefore... Since praise is speaking well of someone, well of them and what they've done, praise is not affection. I'm going to say that again. Praise is to speak well of someone, so it is not affection. I love you is a statement of affection. It is not a statement of praise, definitionally. Turn to Webster's, Google, Rabbi Google. Look up the definitions of the words just by going off of definitions. Praise is to speak well of someone, to congratulate, to exalt. That's actually a great word, exalt. Their attributes, their, their internalized characteristics. And you guys can kind of see where I'm going with this as we're talking about God and what they've done. Therefore, by that definition, it is not affection. It is also not surrender. And there are these themes that occupy a lot of our music, lyrically, thematically, titlely, that are good postures, good heart postures, good physical postures. But for the sake of moving forward, and again, for the sake of foundation, I want to make clear these distinctions of what praise is and what it is not. It is not affection. So saying, I love you to God, is not praise. Now, We'll probably circle back to this or revisit it later, but I am not saying, before we get ahead of ourselves, I am not saying that those are bad. And one of the distinctions I'm going to be making later is 
personal versus corporate worship. I think what is good to occupy, like, lyrically, like, wordly, what is good to occupy the words that come out of your mouth in praise changes whether you are on your own or whether you are in a congregant setting. We'll get into that later. But no, I'm not saying that pouring out your affection unto God is bad. I'm, I'm absolutely not saying that. I do think, however, it is more appropriate in one, or actually, I, I think it's appropriate in one and not appropriate in another. But we'll get back to that. So, praise is speaking well of. Hallel, uya, praise be to God, and speaking well of, exalting who God is and what he has done. So let's pull back the scope a little bit. And now that we've established praise, which is what I'm meaning to the spoken and or sung exalted attributes and characteristics and works of God. Let's back out and now look at the definition of worship. And this comes from Dr. Bruce Leafblad, who spent years teaching on worship and through a cumulative exegesis of what the scriptures have to say about praise and worship, this is what he came up with. Worship definition by Dr. Bruce Leafblad says, True worship happens when we set our mind's attention and our heart's affection on the Lord, praising, there's praise, praising him for who he is and for what he has done. I'll say that again. This is so succinct and so, like, sharpshooter accurate. True worship happens when we set our mind's attention, our mind's attention and our heart's affection on the Lord. Praising him for who he is and for what he has done. It kind of blows me away, like, how well-rounded and succinct and concise this definition is. It includes the mind and attention. It includes the heart and what we feel. Puts them in their proper places. And how is all of that manifested? It's in the praising of what? For who he is and for what he has done. So this is where we start to get into looking to scripture, um, a common passage that is turned to when trying to understand praise and worship. And that is John 4, where Jesus tells the woman at the well that God is looking for those who will worship him in spirit and in truth. Now, before we even proceed, let me just say that a lot of people will answer what this means kind of flippantly as though it's easy or obvious. And I just want to say that it isn't entirely easy or obvious. People take a crack at it. And maybe others can more correctly exegete this passage than others. Um, but to just pretend like we have spirit and the spiritual realm just completely mapped and figured out to me is a little, it's just kind of folly in a sense. But nevertheless, largely, spirit is the passionate, it is the felt, it is the spiritual, the, the fact that Worshiping God rightly, we as Christians post-cross are actually doing so with the indwelt spirit. So we're worshiping with the spirit in us. Um, again, Christ on the cross, veil was torn top to bottom, signifying that the this presence of God and, and what would soon follow his spirit was now accessible post the ministry of Christ. So kind of a little bit of foreshadowing from Jesus if we look at it that way when he says spirit and truth. But the part that I want to dwell on today is truth. Worshiping God in spirit and truth. We have to know who the God that we worship is. 
as, as, as much as we can. And Rick talked about God invites you into the ocean that is him with the teacup. And there are things that you can know with your finite human mortal perspective. That doesn't mean you don't try just because he is unsearchable, but we will not ever be able to wrap our minds around God. He gives us, you know, a grain of sand worth of who he is. And that keeps us busy for 80 years. But we must worship him in spirit and truth. So for who he is and how he wants to be worshiped. And believe it or not, the scriptures do clue us in to this. Largely the law. What is contrary to what God wants? What is contrary to his character? We would all agree that breaking the law, rebelling, transgressing against God is not worship. For if you love God, Christ says you will obey my commandments. That being said, let's turn to 2 Samuel chapter 6. Now, I'm, I'm going to paraphrase for the sake of time because I know attention spans online are, are maybe shorter. But 2 Samuel chapter 6 is the um, account of the Ark of the Covenant being brought back to Jerusalem. This is the famous passage where David dances foolishly and his wife kind of scolds him. And he says, I will become more undignified than this. Um, verse 5. And this is actually titled Uzzah and the Ark. And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nakan Uzzah, put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it for the oxen stumbled. We're going to stop there. Some of you might know the story. Some of you don't. One of the things that I want to, to criticize and please forgive me for any aggressive or harsh tone. I, this is coming from an individual who has done this. I'll say the wrong way who has led worship, who has led you these listeners in worship ignorantly. And I thank God for grace and new daily mercies that I've been allowed to grow in a church, in a congregation, doing a ministry um, and making progress where there were times where I, I made errors. But the, the criticism that I want to make is this. L like how we establish praise being speaking well of and how it's not affection Another thing that I want to get at is intention. One, towards the end, what we're going to be talking about is songs that we do not sing and why. Now, this is jumping a bit, but there are songs that we don't sing. And I know that the individuals who are writing these songs mean well. Of course they mean well. I, I doubt that there are these just malicious, ill will individuals who are fabricating these songs of praise that are for the purpose of tearing down the church. I mean, that's, that's about as devious and as evil as, you know, the father of lies himself. I doubt that it is that malicious of a motivation. You know, I'm, I'm, that was long. I'm sure that people mean well when they write songs, but I feel like, I think like, Sometimes these people write maybe a little ignorantly unbeknownst to them and they, and they produce songs that miss the mark. And, and simply put, therefore, I just don't think that they belong. And I can hear, and I've, I've heard it before, and I can hear it in my mind, people coming and saying, oh, but they meant well. And I'm here 
to submit to you, my brothers and sisters in Christ, that that is not enough and we have a story to prove it. Verse 6, And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error, and he died there beside the ark. And David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah, and that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day, and he said, How can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David. But David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. Oftentimes, whether morally or in some other or facets, as we understand morality to be, we try to superimpose what we think is right on Almighty Holy God. And we are not in the place to do that. And we see a beautiful um, dialogue between God and Jacob, of Scott and Jacob, God and Job, where Job is saying, I could make my case before God, I could take God to court, and I would win. And God eventually answers and says, Excuse me, who are you that darkens counsel without words? Gird yourself like a man, I will question you and you will answer me. This is actually a lot of the issue that I run into when talking to atheists. They, by their understanding of morality, they think, well, God can't be good and love because X, Y, Z. And it's like, no, you are trying to fathom, you are trying to search an unsearchable infinite God with your limited perspective. And this is where it's failing you. People struggle with this notion of God striking down Uzzah, who was saving the ark. Everyone that day was in celebration and in reverence and in awe because this thing that was the symbol of the presence of their one true living God was being returned home. Everyone is celebrating. Everyone is in reverence and everyone is in awe. And we can assume Uzzah was no less, no different. Why else would he reach out to, to catch, to save the ark as it took a dip? And judging by what happened, as God is concerned, do you think, does it look like his good intentions saved him from the vile disobedience of touching the ark, which you are not supposed to do? That's why the ark has ringlets with acacia wood rung through them to be carried upon, because the ark itself is not to be touched. Simply put, all, every ounce and every drop of Uzzah's good intentions did not cover his disobedience. And disobedience, whether ignorant or conscious, is flying in the face of who God is, and his holiness and his majesty and his design and his character. I'm sorry that that might be a hard thing to swallow. Ultimately, as the worship leader, it just means, okay, I can trim these songs. And yeah, I understand Bethel, Hillsong, whoever, I understand you meant well, but hey, this lyric is going to is going to twist some things. It's going to contort some things. It's, it's going to misrepresent, or it's just mediocre. And I don't have to offer mediocre songs to God. I, can, I want to offer what is excellent. 
and I'm and I'm sorry that you meant well. And please, please keep meaning well. Because why? Because love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, and all your soul, and all your strength. That is passionate. I am not knocking or docking passion. What I'm criticizing is passion in absence, in a vacuum of truth. Because if you let that continue on, to spin on, what you will have is a new and different God. And that, beloved, is idolatry. I am not here to lead you in worship songs that worship Santa Claus. Or a God that, at one point in time, did not pour out his wrath and crush his son. Some people do not like the image of a wrathful God who crushed his son, his son who bore our iniquity. To darken or to omit parts of the Bible that we do not like because they are uncomfortable is not what we're supposed to do. And I'm, But I'm also not saying that you're supposed to just be comfortable. We've talked before about how sometimes, yeah, maybe we're just supposed to be uncomfortable. Like, wow, God, you gave Pharaoh an explicit command through Moses to let your people go, and then you withheld from Pharaoh the ability to obey that command? That sounds kind of mean. And as as pastors, our request to you is not to be okay with it or to rationalize it away, like sweeping it under the rug, so that you can be comfortable. No, with trembling, rejoice. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge. Sometimes things don't have to make sense and sometimes they're not supposed to be comfortable. Good intention does not excuse a lack of, an omission of, or an ignorance of truth. Now praise be to God that we live post-cross. Praise be to God that the blood of Christ is enough. That doesn't mean we sin more. For we are to live holy as our Father is holy. My first criticism is this. Good intentions do not make up for a lack of truth. We must have both. And as I have grown as a worship leader, this is what I have begun to more and more passionately defend to make sure that it is the God of the Bible that is being sung about and not my idea of the God of the Bible. For if I have an incomplete view of God, if I'm missing key aspects and then I go and write songs about it, I could miss the mark. And if we wanted to be kind of dramatic, like I said before, commit idolatry. Second criticism, and again, this is coming from an individual who made these mistakes. And I hope that my passionate tone doesn't come off as pharisaical or legalistic. But my second criticism is, Praise, after all that has been said, praise is for God. And the way we do this correctly is making the subject matter the lyrics about him. Again, we've already established praising him for who he is and what he has done. So like we said before, saying I love you, that is not praise because that is an I statement. It is about me. It's good. Yes, affection is great, yes. Surrender is great, yes. But it's not praise. So praise is for God. Obviously, it's for God, but I'm actually going to dwell on the for God part right now. And the way we do that correctly is making the subject matter about Him, the lyrics about Him. But I want to dwell on praises for God because even though that might seem like an obvious point and maybe un, you know repeating it might be unnecessary, but I think it's actually something that is missed 
Because all too often, as a worship leader in other congregations, I hear the time of praise, the time of sung songs, qualified or validated based on what we got out of it. Or rather, songs, certain songs are picked based on how they make us feel. Beloved, let me reiterate, praise is for God. Now, I will acknowledge that oftentimes when we step into a time of praise, whether individual or corporately, it feels good. It is a remedy for, I think, a couple of reasons because we're created for it. And I think often what makes us sick, and I think the psychologists in our church might be able to attest to this, but getting our minds off of ourselves in general is a remedy. And the best remedy to get our minds on to is God himself. So yes, I acknowledge that there is a, there is a remedy to this idea of praise. A, a, a healing feeling that can, can happen. But that is not what makes it right or what makes it good. Again, what you feel or your intentions is not enough. God must be worshipped in truth. Now, this leads me also to to not do certain songs because I can tell, ah, this was written to elicit an emotional reaction from me, an emotional response. And I'm not saying emotion is bad. I think it needs to be, in a sense, harnessed. Again, because what does our definition say? True worship happens when we set our mind's attention and our heart's affection. So yes, channel the affection in your heart rightly. And I think individually on your own, I think you should express to God verbally your love and your affection for him. Like, Lord, I love you. Thank you for your goodness to me. I delight in you. I delight in your ways and your statutes like David does. But I think corporately, that doesn't have a place in a couple reasons why um, co- humans on a corporate level have the worst. I mean, humans just p- period have the worst track record. I mean, we have the entire Old Testament of the Israelites to relate to and their idolatrous hearts and their whorings. And I love the colorfulness of the word whoring um, that is used to describe them and their actions and their wandering from God. If there's anyone or any people group that we relate to as humans that we see in the Bible, it is the Israelites and all of their follies and failures. One of the attributes that is repeated so often in the Bible is God's steadfast love. The people whose love is not steadfast is humans, is ours. So I think it's a bit of a slap to the face, a bit of a backhanded compliment to march into these buildings that we call churches, the house of God, which is now no longer in temples, but in the hearts of men, but to come into these places and to sing about our affection. Excuse me, Lucas, I'm the one with the bad track record. I'm the one that's got, I'm I'm the one that's full of sin, a littered past, a wandering heart, an idolatrous mind. Like I'm the wretch. My love is nothing to sing about. Furthermore, 
saying an I love you statement corporately, what if not everyone in that particular setting is in that mood? I have then, as the worship leader, facilitated a statement that not everyone can agree on. And it's a statement that isn't even praise because we've acknowledged that a statement of affection is not the same as a statement of praise. In fact, they're, they're just different, definitionally speaking. So saying I love you is not praise. I'm not saying it's bad, but because it is not praise and because not everyone can agree on it and because we are so often fickle with our affections, I don't think statements of affection have their place in corporate settings of worship or if they're going to be there, limited. And I'll leave that there. Back to the main point. It is not about what we feel. So therefore, it is not for us to qualify or validate the times of praise based on if we received a feeling or had a feeling. So then the difficult follow-up question then becomes, well, then how do we validate? And well, on the surface level, I would say, well, were people singing? Was God spoken about? Was the gospel spoken about? Was he sung about? Was he the subject matter of the songs, of the sermon, of the lyrics? I would say that is successful. Did people sing out? And was what was sung about God, who he is and what he has done? If the songs that we sung were all about my affection and how good of a worshiper I am and worshiping through all seasons and all storms and, and all my surrender. I'm sorry, but that song is about you, the worship leader. And if it hasn't been clear enough already, I'll say it explicitly as a pro professionally and spiritually as a brother and as a sister in Christ. I don't think that that's appropriate or has a place in our corporate times of worship. So praise is for God. It is about him. So the subject matter of the lyrics needs to be who he is and what he has done. How do we know who he is and what he has done? The word. The word of God is the packaged, concise revelation of who God is and what he has done and how he has dealt with a fallen, depraved humanity. Creation, Passover, Exodus, exile, Christ on the cross, resurrection, early church, and all the way we see God revealed and who he is. And there are key things that we can use, key stories like Uzzah and the ark, key conversations and dialogues like in Isaiah and Jeremiah and the Psalms. Oh my gosh, the Psalms are rich with learning the dialogue of prayer and the dialogue of praise, the vocabulary of praise and how to address the Most High from a broken man who also prophesied from a sinful man who was after God's own heart. Yes, the Psalms are fantastic. A third criticism that I want to make, and this one's maybe minor, but while songs I think should absolutely be biblically rooted, that doesn't mean that just because it's in the Bible, it's automatically acceptable praise. And if that sounds maybe, I don't know, maybe that sounds strange and like, 
you you might want to disagree with that or maybe that sounds obvious but in, in case you're not sure what i mean um i don't know if i would come back to a church or i don't know if i would be okay with going to a church where there was a worship song about the 200 philistine foreskins that david gathered as a dowry to marry saul's daughter <laughs> i don't know if i would want to sing a song about women not being able to be pastors as as you know paul talks about here and there i you know i i don't know if i'd want to sing a song about lot's daughters getting him drunk and then sleeping with him so that the the lineage could be carried on you know, i i just don't think i just don't think these maybe are the best praise songs but but they're in the bible it's like yeah yeah they're in the bible um where's christ in these stories where's god in these stories and for some people, that's a challenge to be like, ah, I'm going to find God. And it's like, you know what? If you want to go try and find God in the stories, please be our guest. Surface level, though, I am not easily and clearly seeing the attributes and the works of Almighty God. Ergo, they're not praise. Ergo, they don't belong in our corporate times of worship. There's a song in particular, which I won't name. Uh, but it's by Bethel, who I largely don't approve of. And I, and I do want to say that because, yeah, if you guys want to ask me about heresy and, and, and bad churches and, and music we shouldn't be singing, I can give you bands to just be very, very wary of, if not just avoid entirely, because it's it's easier in this sense to just kind of broad brushstroke, sweep people away and just not have to worry about whether or not we're singing heresy. Um, but this band recently came out with a song and... There's nothing in the way of God's attributes. There's one line in the song that says, death is defeated, the king is alive. And that's, I mean, we as Christians assume that we're all talking about the same thing, but God in Christ is not actually explicitly said. The rest of the song is, I raise a hallelujah. I'm going to sing in the middle of the storm. The song is largely about me as a worshiper being a good worshiper. And again, I know that they meant well. I know that it was exciting and it was probably to build excitement. But simply put, there's nothing in the song that's about God. Someone said, oh, but that song is so, I really like it because it gets people in a mood. And I was, I don't know whether this came from my wit or from God or from what, but I, I realized, oh, wait a minute. Songs are not meant to pump us up. Doctrine is meant to pump us up. See, one of the things that I haven't mentioned in, in all of our cute little definitions that I've been using is, is this one. Doctrine informs and produces proper doxology. When we learn about the truth that a holy God who must punish sin fabricated a way to do exactly that and give us mercy. Hallelujah is the natural response. It is the truth of who God is and what he has done to us as wretched, depraved sinners. We now listening and talking about this in light of the cross. It is these truths that produce the songs in our hearts and on our lips. So simply put, it is the job of the pastor facilitating the word of God to elicit emotion and passion and affection and the attention onto God in the form of the songs that follow. Not the songs. 
to do all of that. Now, don't get me wrong. Songs, they're musical. They elicit emotional reactions. Obviously, I'm not saying that that's bad. But it's not the sole purpose or sole job of the song to do that. In fact, I would say that's just a happy byproduct. And rather, it falls to the doctrine to do that. So it both produces the praise, but it also informs the praise. For it is from the scriptures. It is from the attributes that God has revealed about himself and his works that we have seen throughout history that we use to fashion songs of praise. And they are praise because they are about him. And then we sing them to him because they are for him. Praise. We're getting near. Time to finish. And I'll add on a, an auxiliary point from a psychologist perspective. Which again, I think the psychologists in our congregation will attest to. And you yourself will probably nod your head and agree with because it's an easy example. But the thing about music is that it is a memory tool. I could probably start any number of commercial jingles with phone numbers in them. And you guys would probably be able to finish them. Yeah. Like 1-800-588-2300 Empire Today. You know, or song, like old, old songs. And like, you know, you can, you can hear melodies in your head. Like, oh, like that sounds really familiar. That sounds like, you know, I, I learned my times tables because they were put in song form. And, and I, and I, Maybe this is embarrassing, but I still use them today. Um, but search your mind. Think about how many commercial jingles or how many movie intros or Disney songs that you could, by and large, maybe sing a lot of. And that is because music has a way of embedding and helping statements, truths, or, or non-truths take root into the recesses of our mind. So that being said... I, as a worship leader, am in the position where I am facilitating attributes of God. And, and, and furthermore, music was, when the church at large wasn't literate, music was, in fact, used to teach, like sermons. But it was also a teaching tool because, well, it's a memory tool. So if I, from the stage, facilitate songs that offer poor theology of who God is and what he has done... I am essentially spoon-feeding unless you have some sort of filter. So for the folks that have gone to seminary and Bible college and they're really well-read and they're really sharp and they, they know these ins and outs and they've got an eye out for heresy and they're teachers of the word, for these people, they've got a coffee filter brain that can go, up. Oh, wait, no, that's a red flag. That's actually not true about God. Or that's, eh, that's kind of missing the mark. But not everyone has those educational experiences. And if the worship leader is not looking out for nipping those in the bud, then what they're going to do is get up on stage and facilitate a song of praise that has poor theology, bad doctrine, and they're just going to spoon feed people's memories. And I'll tell you this, the congregation is more likely to leave church reciting the songs that were sung more than the sermon that was preached. John Piper when questions about, ah, like, hey, John, what do you think about this song? And he'll give his opinion on it. He's always delighted to know that there are worship leaders out there who are concerned with the theology and the doctrine of songs. 
And he says there, there needs to be more of it. And he likens it to James 3, where James says, let not many of you become teachers for you'll be held to a higher standard. He says, let not many of you become worship leaders because you guys are going to teach and you're going to teach in a medium music that will just take root in people's minds. And if what you're teaching, if what you're facilitating is poor theology, bad doctrine, a twisted view and understanding of God and what in his works, <sighs> leading people astray. And again, a small degree of change over a lifetime, over compounding small degrees, well, that's how idolatry happens. That's how wandering happens. And I have frustrated both like my family members. I have frustrated other worship leaders because there are songs that just, they have such an, an emotional tie to them that they, they just really like them. And again, it's not about what you like or what you feel. It's about God. But I have rubbed a lot of people the wrong way. And if it's, it's because, if it's because I'm aggressive or truly pharisaical and legalistic, then yeah, they have a right to be upset with me and, and a right to call me out. But this is coming from a place of God ought be rightly captured and rightly praised. I implore you, beloved, don't, don't, A, don't be helpless in the pews. Search the scriptures for yourselves. Know the God that you have surrendered to. We are all each other's accountability partners. We are all looking out for the sanctification and the growth of each other. Now you guys have gotten a little window into my ministry as worship, but I am constantly, A, looking out for songs that I think are awesome. I think they're beautiful. And again, it's not that we can't enjoy and write beautifully and like the melodies of the songs. But again, remember, it is not our preference. It is not for us. It is for God. But what I am doing behind the scenes that maybe you don't know about is I am keeping a sharp eye out for things that, mm, just might be completely false or might be eh, like I don't know if that's entirely right or even just mediocre one of the ones that John Piper was was brought up was the song and I know you guys will know this is like a rose trampled on the ground you took the fall and thought of me above all it's like are, are we saying that God above his glory Jesus above his obedience to the Father's will, above everything I was on his mind? Mm, even if that's true, even if that's true, which I don't think it is, side note, but even if that's true, guys, my ego does not need that. I am a wretch saved by grace, drowning in sin, death, and darkness, and Christ on the cross metaphorically plunged his hands into the filth of my situation and drug me out of it, resurrected me a dead man in his trespasses and sins. I do not need to feel like I am some hot commodity, that I'm all that in a bag of chips. My pride and my ego do not need it. So even if a statement like that is true, which I don't think it is, my ego doesn't need it. It's this kind of eye and ear that I keep out for when analyzing and listening to worship songs. I would encourage you guys to, not because it's a difficult task and I need help, but to be doing the same, to be your own watchman. For we're not infants. 
or at least we ought not be. We ought not still be on baby food. And not to have a tacky gospel plug, but arguably of all of the things that God is worthy to be praised for, we are living in light of what? The finished work of Jesus, the gospel of Christ. Gospel, good news. Like the good and gospel comes from Evangelion, which is um, the good news that was brought by a messenger back to the main city to to give word that the war had been won. Evangelion, gospel. What is the good news? If if we want to take it, if we want to look at it from the, the sense of war, it is that the war of sin and death has been won, and it was not won by you or your efforts or your might or your weapons. It was won by Christ and Christ alone on the cross. He took on himself our iniquity and bore our shame. And it was upon him that the chastisement and wrath of God was laid so that God could dull and lavish and pour out mercy upon us. God was before the cross already infinitely and wholly worthy of praise. In light of the cross, how much more of a reason do we have to take our heart's affection and our mind's attention onto God and channel them into words that proclaim and exalt the goodness and greatness and majesty and perfection and holiness and cleanliness and set-apartness and works of our mighty God in His outstretched hand and of Christ's nailed hands. Maybe it's tacky to try to plug a gospel in at the end of the message, but beloved, we are chosen now children of God, made possible by the flowing blood of Christ on the cross, and the Holy Spirit has been put in our regenerated hearts by God himself as a seal of our adoption. We have every reason to praise God. New daily mercies, amazing grace, steadfast love, and salvation in Christ that cannot be undone no matter how talented we are at sinning and wandering. God will finish the work that he begun in you. That is a promise from a promise-keeping God. Count the reasons that we have to praise. Count all the times that God has provided and sustained and saved. Remember all that God has done. Guys, the Jews celebrated Passover every year since it happened to remember what God has done. We do that every year around Easter, which just happened to remember similar, like Passover. In fact, Passover was foreshadowing the very event of the gospel and good news of Christ's victory over sin and death and darkness by his death on a cross, taking on our sin, absorbing the wrath of God and God raising him from the dead. And we just, my mother and I read today, that God raising Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit was his amen to Christ's it is finished. Incredible. Again, we could, and this I hope will be a continual dialogue for us over the days and over the years and as we, as we talk about praise and what's acceptable and what's unacceptable and what we choose to sing and what we choose not to sing. But I hope that you guys are walked away with a clearer fundamentally sound understanding and definition of what praise is that we may proceed together as best we can from scripture singing 
and praising in a way that truly pleases God, in a way that he approves of and delights in. Heavenly Father, thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your finished work. Thank you that you raised Christ from the dead. Thank you that you have saved us and that you accompany us through life every day. Lord, continue to build us individually. Continue to strengthen your church. Continue to give us avenues in ways that we may be used by you, with you, in these strange times that we may be involved in the furtherance and advancement of your kingdom. That we may hear one day, when our faith is sight, enter into my rest, good and faithful servant. Lord, have your way with us individually. Have your way with us corporately. And continue to turn our hearts back to you. For Lord, we are sorry that they are so prone to wander. But we thank you that you love us anyway and that you sanctify us. And we welcome the discipline of a loving father as we proceed and march on in life. We love you. haha. <laughs> we love you. And we thank you and we praise you for who you are and what you have done. All in the beautiful and precious and victorious and risen name of Jesus Christ, who is Lord and God and sovereign over all. Amen.